Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to this week's Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here with John Mitchell, as always. We're in the midst of our 2020 conference previews, and things are getting interesting. This week, we're slated to talk about the Pac-12, and what we're going to be talking about now is a conference-only schedule all around, and we're going to talk about the ramifications of this a bit in our opening segment before breaking down the Pac-12 South and the Pac-12 North, um, giving our thoughts on how things might shake out in this interesting uh, new structure to our season as we look at it. Before we get any further, John, I just I want to get your initial thoughts. What did you think when you saw the Pac-12 go to a conference-only schedule? You know, I, my initial thought when you know that shoe dropped and we seen it from other conferences and stuff was just frustration. To be honest with you, like not from a, a standpoint of I think that it's. Like, some people think that it's ridiculous that we would have to take this step. I, I think it's a necessary step at this point in the game. It's just frustrating when you look at where other countries are as it relates to COVID-19 and where we are. Uh, you know, you grew up your whole life hearing about American exceptionalism and how we're better at everything than anybody else. And then we're tested like this and we've, you know, we're found lacking in so many areas and, it could have all been avoided. I was I was on Twitter late uh, one night recently, and they were playing baseball in Taiwan in front of full stands, and it just made me so envious, you know, to be to see a a society and a world where things were normal again. You know, we're not going to have asses and seats at college football games this year. We're not even going to have a full college football season this year if we even have one at all, because. You know, most conference commissioners are saying, like, I think it was um, Greg Sankey from the SEC the other day said, hey, you know, this is kind of a critical time. We're, have, we're not very optimistic about everything coming in the fall. And, you know, it, it, it feels like just a few weeks ago, Zach, we were talking about feeling a little more optimistic about the college football season. And that's just gone straight to hell in the last few weeks, to, for lack of a better term. And, and here we are now. We should be entering the, you know, the last little grind before we get to the college football season. The point that you don't even mind because we sit here and we have these previews and they're a lot of fun. We have a lot of good banter back and forth. And now all of that has just been really ripped away from us to the point that who knows what the season's going to look like. But it's obviously going to be drastically different than anything we've seen in our lifetimes. Exactly. You know, and I think what really struck me with this is, you know, the league didn't just go to conference-only schedules. They're also delaying the start of mandatory athletic activities. So, you know, we hear about these voluntary activities and players, you know, don't technically have to be back at campus until mandatory activities start. And they're not even starting those yet. There's no definitive date set yet. I mean... Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott has tested positive for COVID-19. We, you know, there's been no further news on his status, but 
the fact remains is he needs to focus on getting well before the conference can come up with real solutions. So for me, it felt like the Pac-12's buying time. And, you know, they, they kind of came in the wake of the Big Ten. They didn't want to be the first one to jump on this. But I think ultimately somebody's going to announce a full cancellation like we saw with the Ivy League, like we've seen with some FCS leagues, some, you know, HBCU conferences and, you know, at that level. And I think eventually one of the Power Five leagues is going to do it. And... Right now, you know, I mean, already the plan is to go to 10-game schedules, and that's something we'll talk about more when we get into individual team looks in our, you know, divisional previews in the next couple of segments. But I, I, I think the most important thing we need to look at is this is a conference that ranks fourth out of the Power 5 leagues, just barely ahead of the ACC in terms of per team distribution of TV rights monies. And for a league that's lagging, you know, 20 some million dollars a year behind the Big Ten per team, these kind of cancellations have a big impact on paycheck games, you know, and the legal issues that are going to come about with this and, you know, sort of what kind of act of God clauses do you have in your contracts, basically. what People are combing fine print right now to see if group of five teams and FCS teams can essentially file legal action to make sure they get paid for these canceled games. And if you don't have the revenue coming in from the seats and you don't have any of those games being broadcast and whatnot, what happens to an already diminishing pool of money. We talked last week about Stanford closing down 11 sports. And, you know, I think in the end, we really need to look at at all of these impacts. But that's, you know, the non-conference games are the ones that hit me the most. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. And those are, you know, two of the games that, can be the most fun, too, the ones you look forward to all off-season long, right? The Ohio State, Oregon's, and those kind of games, the Alabama, USC's, those are games that really put you in the mindset to look forward to the college football season. Um, and not having those is, is certainly a big blow. And, I mean, you know, people have made good points about conference-only schedules in the past, like how much sense does it make to cancel Iowa, Iowa State, for instance, because that's an in-state game. Travel would be limited. But the whole reason for conference-only schedules is the flexibility that it gives, right? So if, you know, you had game a game scheduled and a team, for whatever reason, couldn't make that game that Saturday because they had a COVID outbreak or something that prevented it, then, you know, things are more easily shuffled around in conference than they could ever be without a conference game scheduled. So it's all about giving flexibility to these individual leagues. And, you know, you could be right. We could see an outright cancellation or some leagues decide to push their seasons to to the spring instead. And that brings its own set of problems, too. It's not even something we've seriously discussed because it seems so outlandish to think that that was possible. But now it's starting to seem more and more likely that something like that could happen. And what does spring football in 2020 do for fall 2021 right because how 
how do you have a fall 2021 that comes right after having a spring season, like in terms of player safety and everything like that. And in, in any case, we're rapidly approaching not just the 2020 season being impacted severely, but the 2021 season also being impacted in some way. Yeah, it, it, it's all a huge mess in terms of how it goes. And the longer definitive answers get dragged out, the messier it gets. You know, the sooner you can plan for something, the, the easier you can mitigate for it. It's the same reason why we ostensibly shut things down at the beginning of March across the country in order to buy the time necessary to get supplies in place to keep from overwhelming the system and to get people initiating the preventative measures, you know, those shutdowns for six to eight weeks that we've seen having serious impacts in, as you mentioned, places like Taiwan, places like New Zealand, uh, you know, other places throughout Asia, even, you know, areas in Europe where action is starting up at least without fans in the stands, but they're getting games actually going and and have for a while now. And that's really the difference we're seeing here. And, you know, you mentioned flexibility for this shift to conference-only schedules. I think the other thing that it does is it allows for consistency it allows for consistency across the board. You know your other conference members are going to be testing to the same protocols that you're all agreeing upon between those 12 members. You know, even if you're looking at other Power 5 schools, we see consistently that what goes in the SEC doesn't necessarily go in the Big Ten, doesn't necessarily go for the Pac-12, you know. I mean, everything from how many conference games do you schedule within your conference? Do you play eight games or nine games? And and so on and so forth. You know, if you can't agree on things like that, agreeing on testing protocols becomes even more difficult, especially across, you know, state lines that have been wildly divergent in their responses. So, you know, we lose a lot out of this, but we also gain a measure of that stability and that flexibility. But, you know, um, before we go on to discuss some of these non-conference games more, did you have anything further you wanted to throw out about this? Yeah, the one thought that I had to go along with what you were saying, too, is this all, you know, points to the lack of central leadership within the NCAA, too, that these conferences have to do this, because there isn't, an, a college football czar that's sitting there who can mandate these uniform policies for everybody to follow. So that's what makes these individual conferences feel like they have to make these types of decisions to take care of their own member institutions. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a cover-your-ass situation. And that's, I mean, that's exactly what the call-to-go-to-conference-only schedules is. But as you mentioned, we lose some really great non-conference games and for me it breaks down into four tiers you know you have those opportunities against fellow power five teams you know you mentioned the alabama usc for me ohio state oregon was the hardest one to lose um you know oregon's never beat ohio state this is their would have been their 10th time playing each other uh 
the Buckeyes have only come to Autumn once before during the opening season of that stadium back in 1967. And Ohio State whooped their ass 30 to nothing. And, uh, you know, the last time they met was the inaugural college football playoff championship game. Ohio State whooped their ass 42-20. Last time they met in the Rose Bowl, Ohio State whooped their ass. And, you know, this was a huge loss of a chance to make a major statement. Because the winner of this game basically has an inside track to a college football playoff spot this year. Um, if we have a season as usual. So that's the biggest loss for me out of those Power 5 opportunities. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that the winner of that Oregon-Ohio State game would have the marquee out-of-conference victory of the season if if everything was normal, right? Because either Oregon beat the Big Ten favorite, even on their home field would be impressive, or Ohio State went all the way to Eugene and pulled a huge road win over the Pac-12 favorite. So... That's absolutely a huge loss. That was the game I was looking forward to, you know, obviously all offseason long. We've talked about that game for months now, um, and I know particularly for you. And, and for me, you know, it's an, it's one that's it hit close to home because I was really looking forward to Alabama-USC in Arlington. Um, you know, they, Alabama-USC played a good bit in the 70s. They were – you know, dominant college football programs in the 70s, and they played a few years ago, and Alabama won pretty handily in Jalen Hurts' debut in college football. Uh, and, you know, it's it's always a good measuring stick game to have that big marquee season opener like that. And, you know, USC, for USC, too, that was a huge game with Clay Helton really coaching for his job and having the opportunity to to try to earn that big out-of-conference win. And we haven't seen Alabama lose that big season opener they've had uh, under Nick Saban. So if Kelton could have pulled that off, too, that would have been massive for his job security in L.A. Um, and and with a, an Alabama – and for me, too, with an Alabama defense that kind of struggled based on their standards last season, facing a USC offense that's as loaded with talent – as the Trojans are, and it was a hell of a measuring stick game for week one of college football. So I'm going to hate not being able uh, to see that one. Yeah, that's another huge loss. You know, every one of these games is a huge loss, but that sort of, you know, neutral site game has huge implications as well because teams don't play those neutral site games unless they pay more than the gate receipts they'd get from home and home. And playing at Jerry World pays a huge premium so losing out on that does nothing for even you know powerhouse athletic department budgets they still need games like that so all around it's a huge loss you know I also think about like Notre Dame USC a series that's been playing since World War II year Mm -hmm. after year consecutively and losing something like that's always tough but every one of those is huge Let's turn our attention now, though, to, you know, the group of five opportunities, because that's a whole nother tier that we we miss out on. You know, these are the games that allow the group of five hopefuls in the race for one of those New Year's six bids to really separate themselves from one another. So which one are you going to miss the most on the schedule, John? You know, the one that was, to me, that really... I guess it wasn't one that felt 
like a game that really, really was going to determine anything uh, for the Group of Five race or the Pac-12 race. But just in terms of the fun perspective of it, and that was Houston at Wazoo, uh, just from the standpoint of those two offenses going against one another, you got Dana, Dana Holgerson's Houston team, who, you know, we talked about in the Group of Five preview, should have a pretty big turnaround this season, should be a lot improved. And then with Washington State, Nick Rolovich coming over from Hawaii, taking over from Mike Leach. How's that going to look? They obviously had a very fun offensive team at Hawaii, so I doubt much changes for the Cougars on that side of the ball. So that kind of a game with as point, with defense being at a premium, you would have had one of those. That's just the classic non-conference Pac-12 after dark game that should have kicked off at like 10 p.m., um, Central Time, 11 Eastern, and, you know, been an all-night kind of chaotic event. And that's that's what I'm going to miss from the group of five ranks. That is a huge game to have fall off of the schedule. Any of those that involve the Pac-12 are, are unfortunate to lose. And one for me that really hits close to home is it, it actually comes a week later. It could have been another Pac-12 after dark game a week later, actually. It's Utah at Wyoming. And, you know, this is a long-time rivalry game back when they were in the WAC together, even before that when they were in the Skyline Conference together, and, you know, most recently in the Mountain West before Utah transitioned to the Pac-12 in 2011. <laughs> this was a game that happened annually. And, you know, Utah has a four-game winning streak going in the series. Wyoming hasn't won since 2006 when they played at home against the Utes and won 31-15. And, you know, Utah was playing for their 50th win all-time against the Cowboys. It, the series is 49-31-1 in favor of Utah. And, you know... They won't ever have a tie again. The only time it happened was back in 1920. Is a scoreless draw in Salt Lake City. But, you know, Utah had the chance to get to 50 wins. Wyoming had the chance to keep them from getting there. Their War Memorial Stadium in Laramie. You know, the highest stadium in elevation in the FBS. And th that's, a, that's one of those regional games that obviously gets my juices up as a fan of the Pokes. But... You know, just as a lover of football in general, that's old whack action at night as well that could be playing now as Pac-12 after dark game. So, Yeah, I mean, a huge opportunity for Wyoming, too. We were talking about they had a legitimate shot in the Mountain West and being able to get potentially a huge marquee non-conference win if they were then to go on and win the Mountain West would, be a huge, would have been a huge resume booster for them in terms of potentially competing for the Group of Fives bid to the New Year's Six. Yeah. And then, you know, the last tier I want to throw out there, they're really two tiers, but I'm going to lump these together for the sake of time and the sake that, you know, we look at independent opportunities and there's really only four games on that list. So let's lump together those independents and the FCS opportunities that were on the schedule. Which, which ones are you going to miss most out of those? Yeah, I mean, the, the one that stuck out, obviously, we talked about this before, was North Dakota State and Oregon, uh, just for North Dakota State having the chance to go to Eugene and potentially, you know, show the world that not only are they an elite FCS team, they could compete with the big boys in the FBS as well. 
I think they carry one a six or seven game winning streak against FBS teams currently. Um, this would obviously be the biggest hurdle they've tried to to clear. Um, it'd be a showcase game for a guy like Trey Lance, who we've talked about being a legitimate NFL prospect, uh, potentially a first-round pick in next year's draft going against what should be a stout Ducks defense. Uh, so that game would have been a lot of fun. I, I'm guessing that one you're a little more relieved is off the schedule than anything else. You know, as a lover of football, as a lover of FCS football especially, I would have loved to see that game because I think North Dakota State certainly deserves a chance like that. And, you know, the way it aligned with Oregon having as good a defense especially as they do this year, that would have been the toughest FBS defense that they've played during this run of you know unprecedented success at pretty much any level. And so losing that game is obviously one that's that's bittersweet for me because yeah, as a Ducks fan, it it certainly doesn't hurt be for a you know, a Pac-12 team or any Power 5 team, that's a game that you can only lose. You know, if you win that game, you don't gain much from it. Even if North Dakota State goes on and wins their ninth FCS championship in 10 years, you still don't gain much from it. You know, you do in the sense of the computers, but in terms of the human polls and the selection committee, it doesn't mean much. Yeah, even a win could hurt you if it was a close win in terms of the eyes of human polls because if you go and you beat North Dakota State 31 to 30 for instance that's probably going to knock your team down a, a, a few poll positions just because of how close it was regardless of the strength of the bison yeah it, 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 it's a no-win situation for a power five team so I'm not sad from a partisan perspective but from a a lover of the sport and especially underdog stories more broadly it hurts the one last game i want to mention that i'm really kind of sad to see come off it is actually another utah game i'm not a utah fan everybody but for some reason seeing a couple of their non-conference games come off is kind of sad because the other one that really comes off that's a long time streak is the holy war against byu that's their season opener and, you know, they played their 100th edition last August. This is a game that used to always be a conference game, just like Utah-Wyoming was. But, you know, since BYU went independent and since Utah went to the Pac-12, it, it doesn't happen every year anymore. It actually is already due to come off the schedule for a couple of years in 2022 and 2023. Um, before it starts up again for another four, at least four-year stretch after that. But, you know, Utah this year loses their chance to break the longest winning streak in series history. Right now they're tied for ni with nine wins in a row against the Cougars. Um, they're tied with their own streak from 1929 to 1937, and then BYU's streak under Lavelle Edwards from 1979 to 1987. Um, this could be their chance to win 10 in a row 
against their state rival, which is just nuts. You know, in any rivalry game, to win that many in a row, to have that run of dominance, it it hurts. It, it It's twisting the knife a little bit deeper on a rival. And, you know, BYU's chance to especially come in a year where, you know, Tyler Huntley's gone, you, you know, you have... Uh, you know, a more inexperienced Utah team this year than they've had in a couple of years, especially on offense. And that could have been the, you know, BYU's chance to jump on that opportunity and end the streak before they could break the record. Yeah, I mean, we haven't even really got into all the statistical things that are going to happen because of the the cancellations of games in 2020. You have so many different kinds of streaks. Like I was thinking about it, even from the perspective, I know we're talking about the Pac-12, but from an, as an Alabama fan, you know, Alabama's won 10 plus games every single year since 2008. You know, like they, they've, and they've won 11 straight or 11 games every single year since 2011. And those are streaks that are going to die this year, almost certainly. So there's little things like that, that, you know, aren't important on the grand scheme of things, obviously, but when you talk to football nerds like you and I, those are things that really stick out too, because, you know, those are the things that mean a lot, um, you know, as college football fans, that's the stuff that's fun to follow and keep track of, you know, the ESPN stats and info folks and stuff like that, being able to keep track of all the funky little statistical anomalies that take place in the sport. And, how many of those are going to be ended because of a pandemic? Oh, so many. It, it really is. And, you know, the I mentioned back in March when I wrote in my Sunday morning quarterback column that, you know, I was looking back at the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic and how things went down back then. And back then I was saying we need to get ready for some a, a new normal you know this season you know hope for the best but expect the worst and we we're still not certain what's going to happen but even if the season does happen in some limited capacity like we'll be looking at in our next couple of segments here bill soon it, it, it's it's going to lead to a situation where some of these things snap off and we lose some of these streaks and and numbers look wonky. It's just what's going to happen. And we need to accept it and embrace this for the weird season that it's going to be. So on that note, let's take ourselves a quick break. We'll be right back after this minute. Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're talking all things Pac-12 this week after the conference announced that they will be going to a conference-only schedule. So we're going to be talking about this from a couple different angles. We're going to take a couple quick snapshots at each of these teams going in reverse order of how they finished in their divisions last year, starting with the South, as I mentioned. And we'll be looking at You know, the games that they lose from non-conference play, what that does to their strength of schedule. We'll be looking at what their possible 10th Pac-12 game will be if they decide to add only one more game instead of going to a true round robin. And then, you know, taking a look at, you know, how their fortunes might play out, who some of the key players might be on these teams, and 
all of that jazz. So we're going to look at that quick, offer our predictions on how these conferences finish, and then we'll do the same with the North in our final segment. So, John, let's look first at the Arizona Wildcats. Last year, they finished dead last in the South, 2-7 and seven in the conference, 4-8 and eight overall. You know, this year, they lose, you know, the Hawaii game that they lost last year against the Rainbow Warriors. And they also lose a big chance to go on the road and play Texas Tech you know, play a Power 5 in non-conference play and test themselves. Um, they also lose that game against Portland State that personally makes me a bit sad as a former Vike. But, you know, in general, I don't think this does much to their strength of schedule. And for a team that's trying to get out of the the seller of the division and just get back to bowl eligibility if this were a regular season. I I don't think this necessarily hurts them to lose these games because even though they're not tough for strength of schedule, you know, they could have gone one and two in these games, honestly. I think Hawaii had a chance against them. Texas Tech had a chance against them. Um, I'm not going to say that Portland State was going to go down there and take them out, but... Yeah, I mean, you could hope, right? Of course. And, uh, but, you know, I think the big thing here is, you know, if we look at their cross-division play, the two teams that they missed on the schedule this year were Cal and Washington State. Um, which one do you think that they'd rather play? I mean, I would say they'd rather play Washington State because I think with what Cal has coming back, it would be a, a, a more difficult game. So <clears throat> if they had to pick one, I would say that would probably be the one to go with. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I mean, especially for a team that had, you know, fairly high offensive numbers last year. They didn't necessarily put up a ton of points per game. Um, sort of middle of the road there, but they racked up more than 440 yards a game. So you knew this was a defense that could push the ball, or an offense that could push the ball, but at the same time, it's a defense that allowed everybody else to push the ball as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the big question mark for Arizona this year, for sure. We know they're going to score points, even if they're not a top 10 offense. They're going to be a tough team to deal with on that side of the ball. We know Kevin Sumlin can coach offense, but can they get better on defense? That's the big, you know, <clears throat> mystery for this team. It'll probably be what decides whether or not someone's back in Tucson next season. Cause you know, they were one of the worst defenses <clears throat> in all of college football last season. They finished 120th in total defense at the end of the year. They bring back a good bit of returning production on that side of the ball, though. So that's, you know, we talk about that potentially being a good thing and not always being great when you, you know, didn't have a good defense to begin with. But experience in the very least should help them get a little bit better on that side of the ball. But I don't know if I think that's going to be enough to really jump them up the standings in the Pac-12 South. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that they'll necessarily finish dead last in that division, but I don't think that they would have enough to even get to bowl eligibility this year, uh, just in terms of everything they have back. You know, they have a lot of their defense back, and as you mentioned, among 
FC, uh, FBS teams, they, they're 30th overall in returning production, but even then, you know, they lose a lot, and there's a lot of question marks there, and ultimately, I think that's going to be a, a wash for them. Do they really have enough to, you know, take down a team like Colorado, who's, you know, finished fifth last season? in the Pac-12 South, you know, won one more game at three and six, finished a game out of bowl eligibility. Uh, maybe they have enough to take down a team like that, but probably not much more than that in terms of Arizona right now. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. And I mean, the the big thing they have going for them that Colorado doesn't is Colorado's near the bottom of the Pac-12 in returning production. And and Colorado has a brand new coach, uh, which we talked about when it happened as being a relatively questionable hire, um, <clears throat> bringing back Carl Durrell, who, you know, had been out of coaching college football for quite a while, and now he's back. And, you know, with the limited offseason and all the different variables that have taken place uh, due to the pandemic, it's, it's hard for me to see Colorado having a really strong first season under Durrell. Um, they're 115th in the nation in returning production, 120th in offensive returning production, losing, you know, Stephen Montez at quarterback, losing LaVisca Chenault, who was the kind of do-everything receiver they had last season. Where do you re where do you go to replace guys like that? that? That's the kind of, for a program like Colorado, who I think would have actually been on the uptick if Mel Tucker hadn't um, left for East Lansing to be the Michigan State coach. But with a program like Colorado, you lose guys like that. And, you know, this wasn't even a good team last year, and they lose their best players, and they just don't have, you know, the cupboard's not stocked full like these bigger programs um, for them to be able to turn around things overnight. So I imagine that Colorado probably does slip to the cellar. Yeah, you know, when we put out our final standings, I think you'll see those two teams will be right there at five and six. Um, the question is, is can either of them really, you know, get ahead of UCLA, who this, you know, had an interesting season, you know, next season, if you will, under Chip Kelly. Um, you know, they tied for third in the South at four and five in conference play, but they lost all three of their non-conference games. Uh, this season, they probably had a better chance not to go 0-3 in conference play because they were playing, you know, New Mexico State at home, getting that independent that's pretty much below group of five level, you know, is just barely above FCS. <clears throat> and then they had to go to Hawaii and to San Diego State, which were probably two tough outs for them maybe as well. You know, they could have gone one and two in those games and still been doing better. But, you know, I think the thing that's interesting for UCLA is the two teams that they had initially avoided in Pac-12 scheduling this year were Oregon and Washington from the North. And, you know, either one of those teams is going to be a tough tent a tough ad for the 10th game. And if they go to um, full round robin scheduling, having to play both of those teams after thinking they were avoiding them, that's 
that that just adds even more pressure in Chip Kelly's what is it third season now? Yeah, yeah, so. third season. <clears throat> if, yeah, I mean, I agree. It, it's certainly a huge year for Chip Kelly at UCLA. There needs to be more tangible signs of progress in Westwood, I would believe, for for fans to really because the rebuild's been a lot slower than I think most fans. Uh, of the Bruins really expected when they brought in Chip Kelly. <clears throat> and that's not necessarily fair to Chip Kelly because I think there was a lot, it was a lot bigger rebuild job than a lot of people wanted to let on. Um, <clears throat> and we've seen flashes, like you said. They went 0 3 non conference, but they, you know, went a respectable 4 and 5 in the Pac 12. They had a three game winning streak uh, where they beat Stanford, Arizona State, and Colorado in back to back to back weeks. <clears throat> before kind of faltering down the stretch. So, I mean, this is a huge year for the Bruins, for sure. Uh, they're kind of middle of the pack when it comes to returning production in the country. Uh, their strength would be on offense and what they're bringing back. Dorian Thompson-Robinson's entering his junior year. He seemed to really take a step forward under Chip Kelly last year as a sophomore, so I think that's big. But losing Joshua Kelly, who was their workhorse back in the, in the backfield, is going to be... A tough, uh, a tough guy to replace for UCLA this year. I think they've got a real shot, though, at moving up the standings because of kind of the Arizona and the Colorados of the world and with all that Utah has to replace this year. I think the, the door is open for the Bruins to make a run up the standings. Yeah, you know, I think <clears throat> UCLA definitely has that potential. And the way I project a couple of their games moving forward, like... They're within four or five points, so really, I mean, it's the luck of a player or two in the way that it turns could really turn them from a three-win, four-win team into a six-win or even seven-win team if, you know, we're considering a ten-game conference schedule. Um, because I think it's going to be hard to win against either Oregon or Washington, whichever one gets added on, but... Ultimately, I, I, I think that, you know, they do have a chance to, you know, flip the narrative and at least get to what would be bowl eligibility in a regular season. So, you know, I, I'm impressed by them. And at the same time, I think the team that they tied for third last year in the South, Arizona State, um, probably has an even brighter future ahead of them because, you know, I, I, I think first and foremost, it starts with having a guy like Jaden Daniels back. I'm more convinced that he has the chance to grow this year than Dorian Thompson Robinson does necessarily. Uh, but, you know, Arizona State went eight and five overall last year. Maybe I'm biased because one of those eight wins came against Oregon in an absolute shocker of a game where Daniels went off ridiculously well against that tough Ducks defense. Um, so maybe it's just bias, but I think Arizona State has an even better chance of moving up from that tie for third into, you know, a third outright or even moving up into the top two. But, you know, they avoided Stanford and Washington in, you know, cross-divisional play. So either one of those is going to be tough as well, I think, this year. 
probably Washington more so than Stanford, but we'll talk about that more in the next segment. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing we have to do uh, if we're going to talk about the Sun Devils is we have to own up to the fact that neither of us thought the Herm Edwards hire was going to work out. Uh, we were very low on Arizona State last season. So so personally, I feel like I have to apologize because this experiment has certainly gone better than I ever imagined that it was going to go. So apologies to Herm Edwards. He's actually done a lot better than I expected him to do in Tempe. And like you said, getting a guy like Jaden Daniels is a big reason why he was a revelation as a true freshman quarterback for the Sun Devils last year. But also one of the things that I think helps them so much is they take care of the little things so well. Like they were seventh in the country last season in starting field position and third in opposing field position. They were second in the country last year in adjusted turnover margin and eighth in actual turnover margin. So they take care of the things, the little things like that, that kind of go beyond the normal things you look at in the box scores really well. And to me, that's a mark of really good coaching and preparation. Um, And that's something that we didn't really see with Herm Edwards. I'm a lot higher on the Sun Devils now than I was obviously last season. I think they have a legitimate shot in the division. Yeah, I really like the team as well. And I think it comes down as, you know, I as much as I mentioned Jaden Daniels, I think the defense has a real chance to just escalate even further. Last year, you know, they, they well, first of all, they have 76% of their, you know, defensive production returning this year, which is outstanding for the Pac-12. And last year, they gave up almost 400 yards a game, but they only allowed 22.4, putting them, you know, among elite company in that regard. Um, Even scoring only 25 points a game, their defense allowed them to be in every game. And I think with as much talent as they have coming back, especially on the back end with that secondary Jack Jones, Ashari Crosswell, and all of those guys on that, you know, in that defensive backfield, I think that's where they can have that biggest boost again. They can cut down on some of those passing plays even further, reduce down some of the yardage that they allow, and even shave that under 20 points a game with that defense. And I think that's, you know, the one thing I think is unfortunate for them is they lose some of those warm-up games against teams like the Lumberjacks of Northern Arizona and, you know, playing at UNLV in that new NFL stadium, you know, getting that opportunity and, you know, playing at home against BYU, which is, you know, is still a very relevant independent power. You know, missing those sort of opportunities are going to be tough for them to to really get the the opportunity to hone their skills completely before they get into Pac-12 play. But I still think, I, I agree with you, they're still one of those teams that can really escalate it further. Yeah, and I mean, with their non-conference schedule, you're talking about a team that was probably going to push for 10 wins. And yeah. that's obviously one of those big milestone markers that teams try to hit, particularly when you're trying to take a program in the direction that her members is hoping to take Arizona State. And we're probably talking about a team that's probably a year away still, I think, from seriously competing for a Pac-12 championship. 
But the 2021 Sun Devils, with how they've been recruiting and with Jaden Daniels coming back as a junior in all likelihood after progressing as a sophomore, then, you know, this is a team that's certainly on the rise in the Pac-12. Yeah, I think almost getting to cut their teeth against a conference-only schedule in a year that really you're playing with house money in that regard. And, this, you know, that can really sort of steal the fire for 2021, as you said. I think that's probably Herm's time to shine. That's kind of his put-up-or-shut-up year. But this year they'll be playing with house money. I could see him getting, you know, up into that top three easily, if not, you know, vaulting over depending on what happens. But let's look at those top two from last season, starting with USC, who, you know, beat Utah, but missed their chance to win the Pac-12 South as they sort of flamed out. You, We mentioned in that opening segment, they lose that chance against Alabama and Arlington. That's really kind of tough for them. They also missed their regular game against Notre Dame that they've been playing for you know, seven decades now in a row. So that's always tough as well. Losing New Mexico doesn't do much for the strength of schedule. It does a little bit for padding Clay Helton's record a little bit. Um, but, you know, the possible 10th Pac-12 game is going to be either Oregon State or Washington State. So that's kind of a, a pad right there, I think, in in lieu of that New Mexico game. Um, does Keaton Slovis do enough with that, that offense, you know, with his receiving core, Tyler Vaughn's, Amon Ross, St. Brown, and all of the rest coming back? Does, do, do they do enough to, to keep Helton in his job this year, John? Yeah, it's really interesting because the goalposts have kind of moved on what's going to allow Clay Helton to return in 2021, right? Because... You know, we said in the beginning it probably would take a Pac-12 title uh, to do it, but with everything that's changed and all that, you never really know. And losing those marquee opportunities in non-conference where he could have had a shot, maybe if they didn't win the Pac-12, but maybe if they would have gone and beaten Notre Dame on, you know, Thanksgiving weekend to end the season, and, you know, maybe that would have been their 10th win, for instance, even if they fell short in the Pac-12 championship game to an Oregon or whoever then maybe that would have been enough. But losing those opportunities is kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because you lose the opportunities at marquee wins, but you also lose two games that you, you know, at least against Alabama, you would have been a heavy underdog. And then you might have been favored against Notre Dame since it was at home, but that would have been enough. That probably would have been at best a coin flip game as well. So you lose those opportunities to get the wins, but you also knock off two potential losses off your schedule. And like you said, you replace um, one of those with either Oregon State or Washington State, who USC would be a big favorite against, whether that was a home or an away game. Uh, I think it would be a pretty big upset in the Pac-12 South this year if any team other than the Trojans won the division. And anything less than a division title would be it for Clay Helton, because this team's ridiculously talented. You're talking about a team that brings back the fifth most returning production in all of college football. They have... Like you said, Keaton Slovis back at quarterback. He was a revelation last year. Threw 30 touchdowns as a freshman. They have probably the deepest set of receivers in all of college football. 
And that's just talking about their offense. They bring back the seventh most returning production on the defensive side of the ball. They have 10 returning starters back on defense. They bring back their entire secondary. Um, and that's where they really struggled last year because defensively ended up finishing 78th in the nation in total defense. So you've got to hope that that number really moves up this year. And with all they have coming back on that side of the ball, I think it would be you know, foolish to think that they're not going to improve. This is the most talented team in the Pac-12 South, and there's no real excuse um, other than the season being outright canceled for USC not coming out on top. Yeah, it, I, I think that's exactly right. The, the time is now. I think even in the season that we're in, if it plays out as a conference-only slate and we don't see further cancellations and, you know, further just complete terminations of the season, it, it, you, it, it's USC's to lose, especially because they don't have the pressure of those non-conference games, both the, the traditional rivalry against Notre Dame and that hell of a huge game against Alabama that was right there looming at the beginning of the year. Now they can prepare for... You know, just playing out a Pac-12 slate and not having to romp all over the country and, and do what they need to do. Th th at the same time, it's interesting. With as much as Utah is losing this year, and let's be honest, if you're going by Bill Connolly's returning production statistics, no team in the FBS loses more than Utah this year. Um a lot of people are still projecting them to be a damn good team. And I I think that's, that's a testament um, on one hand to Kyle Whittingham and the job he does year after year in Salt Lake City. I think the fact that the non-conference games they lose this year, you know, they, they lose that holy war against BYU. They lose the trip to Laramie against Wyoming. But they, you know, and they also lose a home game against FCS Montana State, which, you know, we talked about could very well be a damn good Big Sky Conference team this year when we talked about it in our, our FCS previews. You know, all in all, they lose those games. They're, it, it's not a bad thing for them in terms of just being able to focus. And they're the team with the biggest, you know, like they have Oregon potentially looming on their schedule now as well as a possible 10th Pac-12 game. If they get Stanford, they're lucky in that regard because I, I think playing Oregon is probably what's going to happen to the Utah team. And, you know, the, the thing I'm most interested in is what do they do at quarterback now? You know, Tyler Huntley's gone uh, Jason Shelley had the most experience for coming back, but they wanted to put him at safety. And, you know, he transferred to Utah State. So coming out of a pandemic, you know, even if you wanted to go with one of your hotshot young recruits at that time, do you want a steady hand that could have been there? I think that could be the one thing that ends up being Utah's undoing this year. Yeah, it really all depends on how Jake Bentley, the South Carolina transfer, really transitions uh, for the Utes. But from what I had read about um, the early bits of competition between him and sophomore quarterback Cameron Rising was that he was behind in the yeah. quarterback competition. And 
you know, I guess that shouldn't be too much of a surprise because he was just now kind of coming in to learn the playbook and everything. But the fact that we've had this pandemic and everything's been shut down isn't really conducive to him being able to get the reps that he needs to be the guy this year anyway. But, yeah, I mean, any optimism that anyone has for Utah this year is strictly because of Kyle Whittingham's track record because they don't have um, a lot coming back. They're dead last, like you said, in returning production. They're dead last in defensive returning production. And that's really that was their calling card last year. Was it just a dominant defense that finished um, second nationally in total defense last year? They were really good on that side of the ball. So replacing uh, guys like Bradley and A uh, in particular is going to be huge shoes to fill. And if you look at their two deep, there's a lot more freshmen and sophomores on that defensive two deep than we really see from a Whittingham team. There are. Usually when you see good Utah teams, you see a lot of upperclassmen. I don't remember them having um, a lot of this many underclassmen on the 2D this year. So that's certainly concerning, um, particularly when you're talking about having a condensed um, season, having condensed workouts to lead up to the season, having to play a lot of freshmen and stuff this year, I think is going to be a big challenge for everybody. And unfortunately, that's the reality for the youths. Yeah, it really is going to be. Well, on that note, what do you have as the conference order this year? Who do you have winning it? What's your one to six, Sean? Uh, I've got USC. I think they're the, the best team on this side of the conference. I think they have the most talent. I went Arizona State second. I'm really high on, on the Sun Devils. Maybe this is a course correction from picking them to finish like dead last last year in the division. Um, I actually went UCLA third. I think Chip Kelly's guys uh, take that leap forward to third. I had Utah slipping to fourth. I probably would have reversed those two teams if everything wasn't so condensed um, this offseason. But with Utah having such an experience, I think it's going to be a real challenge for them. Then I went Arizona fifth, and um, I think they'll climb out of the cellar. And then Colorado slips down to sixth. Yeah, I have Colorado going 0-9 this year based on the teams they're scheduled to play right now. And I don't think any team you're going to add to that schedule is going to do them any favors. I have Arizona 5th. I'm with you there. I have UCLA 4th. I, I think as much as I love Chip Kelly, I still have so many question marks about that team. I think Arizona State finishes 3rd. I, I think Utah slips to 2nd. Um, but I think there's still so much talent even in that too deep, a young too deep, but I think it's one that can get a lot of experience here and even finish with seven or eight wins. Um, and I think USC finishes top of the division with only one loss. And I think you'll, you'll probably guess who I think that <coughs> loss comes against. Right. But, you know, before we discuss that a little bit further, let's take one quick break. Before we get into our final segment, looking at the Pac-12 North and how things shake out in the end in the Pac-12, stay tuned. Welcome back to the final segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're here talking Pac-12 preview time. We just finished looking at the Pac-12 South, and now we're going to dive into the North. We're looking bottom to top from last year's rankings since we don't have any media preseason polls to go off of yet. So 
Let's first look at Stanford, who finished in a tie for fifth last year at three and six in conference play. They were four and eight overall. Um, really not that sort of level of quality that we've come to expect over the years from Stanford at all. This year, they were due to play at Notre Dame, but otherwise they had games against FCS William & Mary and against BYU both at home that fall off of their schedule with the shift to conference play. I, you know, I look at this team and is Davis Mills really the guy to lead them back to prominence in the Pac-12 North? I'm not so sure about that, especially with games against either Arizona State or Utah looming on the schedule as a possible 10th Pac-12 game. Um, so, you know, you look at the returning production, they have a decent amount of it. They were, frankly, kind of shit offensively last year. So that's why I have to ask, is Davis Mills really the guy to turn things around for them? Or do they turn in a different direction, even with the the lack of opportunity to get people reps in the preseason? Yeah, I mean, the biggest oddity from Stanford the last couple of years has been how much they've fallen up front on the offensive line because they haven't when Stanford was at their peak under David Shaw they were a dominant running team you know with the Christian McCaffrey's of the world big dominant offensive lines that would produce NFL guys every single year and that just hasn't been the case the last couple of seasons right like we've had a couple of years in a row where Stanford has really struggled up front they were 123rd in the country last year in rushing. So I think that's the bigger immediate concern for Stanford to solve. Uh, I, you know, I don't think Davis Mills is a great quarterback. I don't think he's a bad quarterback either. I think he's somewhere in between. Uh, but he's not good enough to elevate an offense that can't be uh, two-dimensional. You know, if, if they can't run the ball effectively, this isn't going to be a good offense in 2020 again. And, you know, honestly, it's starting to feel like a program that's on the decline. You know, this, this Stanford team just hasn't felt like the Stanford we had grown accustomed to over the last decade. You know, they were I, – I thought they would slip up a little bit last season, but I don't think anybody saw 4-8 and eight coming for the Cardinal. That was just a, a huge shock. Um, I, I, they should, I think, take a bit of a step forward. I can't imagine they're going to have – whatever the equivalent to that would be this season in a conference-only schedule. Uh, they should be a little bit better, but I still think they're a far cry away from seriously contending for a Pac-12 title. Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't think they push for the top spot in the conference, but honestly, the way this conference looks with the amount of flux that's there, I, I think they could easily push for a top half spot in the division. Um, and I think that's as much a testament of the uncertainty around the rest of the league, you know, cause you look at a team like Washington state who finished right there with them in a tie for fifth last year at three and six in the conference, they went to a bowl game last year, ended up finishing six and seven after losing that bowl game. Um, but they also go into their first season without Mike Leach at the helm in a long time. You know, Nick Rolovich, as much as we both love him as a coach for his time at Hawaii, 
he's going into a completely new situation in Pullman. It's a step up in level to Pac-12 play, and he hasn't had a lot of time with that team. So, you know, again, this is another team that lost a lot of sort of warm-up opportunities, you know, getting the chance to play on the road, but doing it against a team like Utah State, where the pressure at Maverick Stadium and Logan is much smaller than it is at some other places they could be playing. And, you know, getting those chances to play at home against Houston and what would have been a really probably exciting barn burner. And, you know, getting that chance to play an FCS game against Idaho in that sort of battle of the Palouse there. They miss out on all of those. And now they're probably going to be playing, you know, they're going to be playing either USC, which would be much tougher than playing Arizona, which could be their other opportunity for a 10th Pac-12 game. So... You know, I think with Washington State, we have all those question marks, and and really, you know, Max Borgie is the guy that this is going to hinge on, because it, you know, the running back position hasn't been so huge for Washington State when Mike Leach was there. He He's an arid-out guy. He's the mad pirate. He's going to launch every cannonball he can. Um, but I think Borgie gets his chance to, to shine this year because Rolovich is the type of guy who would, you know, he'd play out of pistol looks and he'd get his running backs more, more opportunities out of some of those, even swinging it out of the backfield. So I'll be interested to see what he does because with an offense that brings back so little this year, it, he has, he has to play a bigger role. Yeah, I mean, Borgie's their leading returning rusher and receiver to show, you know, what all they lost out wide last season. So, you know, it'll be interesting, too. They don't have that ready-made quarterback sitting there this year either. There's no veteran senior quarterback like an Anthony Gordon um, from last season who kind of came out of nowhere. There's no one like that on the roster this year. Um they're going to have to start an underclassman. I think the favorite's Cameron Cooper, a sophomore. Um, but they lost their top three guys on the depth chart at that position last year. So not having any continuity at that position, having a new coach, that's going to be a major challenge for Rolovich in his first season, particularly with all the existential things that have happened. Um, and, you know, they slipped up last season from being a team that was really competitive and very nearly won the Pac-12 North um, two years ago. And they fell back because they fell back defensively, right? Like they had really made progress on the defensive side of the ball in 2018. And then 2019, that fell by the wayside. They were 111th in the country in total defense. Um, they're 22nd nationally in returning defensive production, so that's a, a good start to making improvement on that side of the ball. But I think it's going to be difficult for Washington State this year with all they had to replace on offense. We're trying to learn <clears throat> a new system. Obviously, Rolovich is a prolific offensive coach, so they'll be able to score some points and figure that out. Um, but I just don't, I don't think Washington State is... Um, going to be able to make much of a run up the standings. I really think they're going to finish near the bottom again. Yeah, I I agree with you there. And, you know, I think about (laughs) where they sit relative to a team like Oregon State, who, you know, 
first of all, let's look at how weird the Pac-12 North was last year because Oregon won that division at 8-1, and one, and then you had three teams that finished tied for second at 4-5 and five in conference play. And one of those was Oregon State. Uh, you know, they finished five and seven overall, just missed making a bowl game. You know, they didn't win their non-conference games in a way that Washington State did. And this is a team that, you know, they bring back even less on offense this year. They bring back even more on defense this year than Washington State does. And frankly, as much as I hate to say it as a duck, I like where Oregon State is going. I think that they benefit from, you know, having some of these non-conference games drop off, especially that opener against Oklahoma State at Oklahoma State. I think that's a test that, you know, could set the tone for a down season for a team that's, especially on offense, going to be young. But losing that and just going straight into conference play kind of takes that pressure off that a, a non-conference trip to a Power 5 opponent puts on, on a young team. So I, I think they have the chance to take that next step up. And, you know, whether or not they're... You know, at the same time, I... I like them, but I, I, I think that offense might be too young. I think the defense will keep them in games, but I think they're probably going to get into too many shootouts that they just can't keep their team going in long enough. So, Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> this kind of feels like the year before the year for yeah. Oregon State. Um, I think we've both been super impressed with what Jonathan Smith's been able to do when Corvallis. This team was a a disaster when he took it over and they were one of the most improved teams in college football coming off going two and 10 in 2018 and jumping to five and seven last year and coming so close to going to a bowl game. They lost by one point to Washington state in late November and that kept them from going bowling, but they also had a three point loss to Hawaii and a three point loss to Stanford as well. So you're talking about seven points swinging three games, seven total points swinging three games. So, I mean, the Beavers were right there. They probably were good enough to be a bowl team last year. Replacing Jake Luton at quarterback is going to be a, a huge undertaking for sure. Um, he was outstanding. He threw 28 touchdowns and only three picks, so his ability to take care of the football was huge for the Beavers last year. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, they return – a lot of talent defensively, but that was the weak spot of the team last year. So I don't know if their defense is going to be able to make a big enough leap forward to offset all they lost on offense. Obviously, Jamar Jefferson's a super talented running back, so being able to lean on him is going to be huge for that Beavers team. But yeah, I, I think they're going to show some, this could be kind of a transition year for them. They might not be any better than last season matching last season's four and five mark in the pac 12 might be a little bit too optimistic um or you know five and five depending on if they play a 10th game um but definitely the future i think is bright and corvallis and oregon state sooner rather than later is going to be really competitive in the pac 12 again 
yeah, I like that this probably isn't their year, but I think if, you know, in terms of the 10th Pac-12 game, they, they've got to be wishing for Colorado rather than USC this year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I, 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 I'm right there with you. Even if they go to 10 games, I think getting to 500 is going to be tough for this team. I really do. And even with the swing that could have had them technically at 6-3 and three in conference play last year... It's still going to be tough for them to 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 get anywhere near that mark, and that's not a knock on that Beavers team. But it it, it again, like you said, it's probably a year too early. Another one of those teams that finished tied for second last year at four and five in conference play was Washington. And that was Chris Peterson's last year. Now, they're dealing with a transition that's not nearly the same as it is for some teams with new coaching staffs. Because, you know, Jimmy Lake stepped up and, and, you know, he was the next man up taking over the head coaching job. And, you know, I think for this team, they lose that, that marquee opportunity against Michigan. You know, they lost it when the Big Ten declared that they were going to conference-only schedules before the Pac-12 even made that announcement. So, you know, the other games they lose from that, they lose two home games worth of revenue is basically what they lose out of it because Sacramento State and Utah State were both supposed to be gimmies at least. But, you know, I I think they need UCLA rather than Arizona State in that 10th Pac-12 game if they're going to get one of those gimmies back because Arizona State probably gives them a real run for them their money there. So, you know, I, I'm looking at this team this year. This is a team that honestly was far better than their 8-5 and five record and their 4-5 and five record in Pac-12 play. They were you know, one of the better teams in the country, both offensively and defensively. They scored 32 points a game. They held teams under 20 points a game, but they still lost five games, and they lost all of them in conference play, and they lost them largely in excruciating fashion. So, I... This is one where, on one hand, it feels like things could really turn back around for Washington, um, and they could potentially give a team like Oregon a real run for its money this year in conference play. And you have to wonder, even with, you know, the continuity that does happen, do the transitions around Jimmy Lake sort of reshuffling the staff, you know, make this sort of a, a year zero for him? Yeah, I mean, they just couldn't figure out how to win close games last year. They were 0-4 in one-score games, and their five losses last year were by a combined 25 points. They were, I mean, I can't imagine having been a Huskies fan how frustrating that had to have been last season, because you're right. I mean, statistically, they should have been much better. They should have been right there with Oregon neck and neck for the Pac-12 North Championship with a shot to play for the Pac-12 title in the Rose Bowl bid. That's what everyone thought was going to be the case of Washington last year. And really, they weren't wrong, but that's football, right? That's, yep. you know, <clears throat> margins can be razor thin between winning and losing football games. So, you know, I, I think year zero is probably a fair assessment. I I think Washington certainly has talent. They've recruited well enough to have, you know, a lot of talent. But they've got a lot to replace on the offensive side of the ball. 
you know, and some of it could be addition by subtraction because Jacob Easton never really lived up to the the hype that he had coming in. He was solid last year, but he wasn't nearly as good as I think Washington fans were hoping him to be. Uh, now, whether Jacob Sermon can take over or Dylan Morris or whoever it is at quarterback for the Huskies this year and show the improvement they need, you know, well, it remains to be seen. What we do know is they'll probably be pretty good defensively. They bring back a lot of talent on that side of the ball. Um, obviously, Jimmy Lake's a defensive coach, so that'll be their identity. And whether or not they can, uh, some of these young guys can really step up on offense will be the difference. But they're probably, just like Oregon State to me, they're probably a year away uh, from what they can be. I don't think they're a serious contender this year for the Pac-12. No, I think they're a team that finishes comfortably in the top half of the division. But I think they're a team that, yeah, they're a, at least a year away from seriously pushing for that division title and the conference by, you know, necessity. The last team that finished second in that division, that that three-way, four-five tie, if you will... Uh, was the Cal Golden Bears. And, you know, we look at Justin Wilcox's team last year, and they were pretty much the opposite statistically of what we look at as a Washington. You look at their 21.2 points a game that they scored, and their 21.9 points a game that they allowed, and they should have never been an 8-5 and five team, whereas Washington could have very easily been an 11-win team. Uh, and I think part of that came down to Chase Garbers being injured last year and the fact, you know, that they were having to piecemeal a lot of things together because at the beginning of the season, when you saw things humming on all cylinders, that team was seriously scary as a Pac-12 North threat. And, you know, I really wonder with... You know, one of the the most experienced offense returning in all of college football. And, you know, a defense that, you know, needs to improve on where it was last year. Half of the guy, you know, half of the production's back, half of it isn't. You're hoping the half of production that's gone is, was the, you know, the parachute dragging you down more than it was the, the you know, stat patterns. So, you know, I, I look at this team in Berkeley and you, I, I wonder whether or not they seriously have that chance to remain there as, you know, sort of a second-place quality team. And I, I think even this shift to a conference-only schedule... They lose a couple of easy wins there in UNLV and Cal Poly. TCU, I think, was, you know, they got to play them at home, but I don't know that that was necessarily going to be a win for them. Yeah, I, you know, I think uh, you brought up a really good point. The Chase Garber's injury, I think you can look at Cal as two different teams last season. Uh, pre- and post-Garber's injury. So, if he can stay healthy this season... That's huge, and I think this Cal team is actually legit with a healthy Chase Garbers. Um, you mentioned defensively they return about half of their production. It's weird because they return eight starters. Just so happens the three guys they lost were probably their three best defensive players last year, 
in Evan Weaver, Ashton Davis, and Jalen Hawkins. So losing those three guys is certainly going to be a challenge to replace. But like you said, no one brings back as much talent offensively or as much production offensively as Cal brings back in 2020. Um, they obviously need to improve on that side of the ball from where they were last year. They were 117th in the country in total offense. But this was a totally different offense when Garbers got hurt. Devin Monster couldn't figure out um, how to, to get things going for that offense. They had really built the offense around Garbers and kind of just had to really just try to hold on and win games, win ugly games with Monster. And they, you know, did that several times to be able to get two eight wins. But I think if, if Garbers is healthy, to me, this is probably the second best team in the division with all that they return. And I think Justin Wilcox is a really good coach. And I think he's doing remarkably well in Berkeley. And I think this is a Cal team that's also on the upswing. You know, I really do like this Cal team and I'm skeptical about that defense. I really am. I think that's going to be the Achilles heel that holds him back. I think that offense could improve by as much as 10 points a game this year. And I wonder if that defense doesn't backslide by at least a touchdown as well and have them losing a couple of other, you know, close games again. That's really kind of what I'm nervous about with this team as I project them going through game by game. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I, I, there's so many question marks, it feels like, between these teams that are sitting two through six in this division. There's a lot of talent on all these teams, but there's a lot of question marks as well. I think I just lean with Cal, the experience that they bring back. Um, I think gives them a bit of a leg up when you're talking about this kind of year that we're about to have. It's true. With this kind of year, who the hell knows? You know, I think the one certainty that most people are looking at this year and that I certainly won't cry about as a fan of Pac-12 football and specifically of my alma mater is that most people are projecting the Ducks at first to repeat as division champions after they went 8-1 last year and won 11 games overall. Um, you know, we've mentioned a couple of the games that that, that drop off their schedule. They lose that, that game against defending FCS national champion North Dakota State. They lose the game against defending Pac-12 champion or Big Ten champion Ohio State. They lose the game against, you know, defending Mountain West West Division champion Hawaii. Um, all at home, so they lose all of that revenue from Watson Stadium. Um, not that there was going to be much this season with how we're looking at empty stadiums on the horizon. But, you know, I think no matter what happens here, I look at this Oregon schedule, especially, you know, with the fact, you know, whether they add Utah or UCLA for a 10th game, and it's hard to find a team that's got a serious chance to knock off the Ducks this year, at least, you know, when they're able to focus solely on Pac-12 play. Yeah, I mean, Oregon's certainly the cream of the crop. Um, not just really in this division, but in the Pac-12. They're, we've talked about it before. Mario Cristobal is recruiting on a different level than any other Pac-12 team. Um, and that's obviously starting to bear fruit because his first recruiting classes 
um, with Oregon are starting to become contributors. You've got guys like Kayvon Thibodeau, for instance, who's going to be a likely monster. He had nine sacks as a reserve last season as a freshman. So what's he going to do in a starting role? He'll probably uh, go above that, even with a condensed schedule. So it really comes down to what happens on the offensive side of the ball, because I think Oregon, you know, defensively they bring back their 18th in the country in returning defensive production. That was obviously a strength for the Ducks last year. Um, and with Andy Avalos back as defensive coordinator, you got to figure this is probably going to be the best defense, at least in the Pac-12, if not one of the best defenses in the whole country. Um, so it all comes down to, to offense. You know, replacing Marcus Arroyo, an offensive coordinator, they bring in Joe Moorhead, who obviously had a ton of success as the offensive coordinator at Penn State before struggling um, as the head coach with Mississippi State. But, you know, they have a ton to replace on offense, particularly – Losing Justin Herbert is going to be difficult, but they do return their three leading rushers from last season, which I think takes, you know, a lot of the um, load off of whoever's starting at quarterback, whether that's Tyler Shaw or whether that's Anthony Brown, the Boston College transfer. Um, and, you know, you have to rebuild an offensive line with four new starters, but you have the anchor in Panay Sewell, who would be the number one pick for any offensive line coach, if you were having to build an offensive line around one player, he's not just the best offensive lineman in the country. He's one of the best overall players in the country. A guy who's probably going to be a top five draft pick in 2021, whether we have a season or not this year. So I think Oregon's far and away the best team in the Pac-12 North. I think it would be a, a major upset if any of these other teams were able to overtake the Ducks. So do you have the Ducks at first overall, John? Oh, yeah. Who do you have behind them, two to six? I actually went Cal seconds, um, and then I was kind of on the fence between Washington and Stanford, but I gave uh, the Huskies third and went Stanford four, and then I had Oregon State five, and then Washington State bringing up the rear at six. Putting them Cougars last, Cougaring it up, can't argue against that, except I'm going to, because... As much as I love the job that Jonathan Smith has done, I think Oregon State is still kind of waiting for that that next lead. I think they finish last again. I think Cal finishes right behind them with Washington State fourth. Um, just because they get the luck in close games more than the Golden Bears do. I think that flips on them. I think Sanford finishes third. I think Washington finishes second. And I think my Oregon Ducks go undefeated this year in regular season play. So the question I have to ask is if we do have a college football playoff this year, as much as, you know, we can hope for it, do you think a Pac-12 team gets through? You know, I think the Pac-12 is probably the conference, if you're talking strictly from the standpoint of who's affected the most strength of schedule-wise, it's going to be the Pac-12. Just from a national standpoint, they're viewed as the weakest Power 5 league. And whether or not that's fair or not is another debate, but it's the reality of the situation. So you know right now if each league produced a an undefeated team that whoever won the Pac-12 is probably going to be the team on the outside looking in. 
And that's unfortunate for the league as a whole because they've been shut out of the playoff the last couple of years. And I think Oregon is a team, uh, I think Oregon and USC both could be legitimate playoff teams this year. I think they're both very strong uh, teams, but both of those um, schools losing the marquee out-of-conference games they have, that's such a big loss for the Pac-12 because there was such uh, a chance for Oregon and USC in particular to go out there and really help change the reputation of the league as a whole if Oregon was able to knock off Ohio State, if USC was able to knock off Alabama or Notre Dame. And not having that this year, um, you know, obviously if Oregon goes undefeated or USC goes undefeated in Pac-12 play, that's going to give them a shot. But I think this is the league that's going to get the least bit of benefit of the doubt. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you. I think it's really tough. I think it, this is a year where Oregon's going to, you know, if we look at their schedules right now, they're going to beat USC. And I think that's the only loss that USC takes. And I see them going at combined 17-1 and one, or 19-1 and one, or 21-1, and one, depending on how we end up shaking out this season. And, you know, I, I I think in that regard, you they could have easily played again in the Pac-12 championship game, in which case you would have had a 10-2 Trojans team whose only losses were against top five Oregon and Alabama teams sitting there somewhere in the top 10 and playing a Ducks team that was undefeated and in the top five or, you know, was 11-1 at most and in the top five. So, it it really is a lot of loss for the Pac-12 in that regard. And at the same time, I, I think the fact that they can focus just on their own season right now allows for either USC or Oregon to go undefeated based on who wins that game between the Trojans and the Ducks at Autzen. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And the, the thing about the, the, the reputation thing as well is, you know, USC didn't have to beat Alabama. If they played Alabama close, that would be such a boost for the Trojans in a Pac-12 as a whole because I don't know what the point spreads um, were for that game um, at the moment. But, you know, Alabama would have probably been a two-touchdown favorite in the very least over USC. So if the Trojans would have been competitive in that game, that would have been a big profile boost for Helton's team. So... Yeah, I mean, who knows if we even have a Pac-12 championship game? Who knows if we have any semblance of a college football playoff this year? Or if you end up having five or six teams who have legitimate claims at the end of the year to be national champions. Well, this is a time to remind everybody that the national championship has always been an illusion. Even when we've had... 16 years of the bowl championship series or now six years of the college football playoff. It's an illusion. It's a really satisfying illusion. If you're somebody like John, who's come out on the winning end of that bargain. Um, but ultimately it's an illusion. It's something that we negotiate between ourselves as fans every year. And just like with our paper money, where we invest that legal tender into it, we invest that relevance into these systems that we create. And whatever system comes out, and it's something I'll be writing about 
this week in my Sunday morning quarterback, actually. Um, so stay tuned for that on Sunday morning, everybody. Uh, but, you know, I think the thing ultimately is it, it, this season is going to teach us more than anything that that regional dominance is just as important as national dominance in a way. And it's going to give us a newfound appreciation for it. And whatever happens with bowl games, with the postseason, whatever, and honestly, I'm skeptical right now that any of it comes to fruition... I don't think we see a college football playoff this year, so I don't have to be disappointed about getting left out of a college football playoff. But, you know, whatever happens with that, we're ultimately going to come back to a point just like we saw in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, where it's a construct. The national championship is a construct that we determine and we either accept it as legitimate or we don't, depending on what our proclivities are as fans. And we're going to have to accept it for what it is. But that doesn't mean it can't be fun. Like, the whole reason we have these arguments about national championships is because it's fun. And we're going to have that in spades this year, just like we did back in, say, 2007. Yeah, I mean, this is the year, too, that if you're a team that loses one game or goes undefeated, go find some poll that lines up with you number one and hang the damn banner. Oh, hell yeah. You know, I hope this is a season... So, do you know what season has had more national championship claims than any other ever, John? Just as one last little trivia question before we leave. I'm going to imagine that... I'm going to say you're going pandemic East. So, I'm going to say 1918. It's really close. It was actually three seasons after in 1921. Six different teams had the claim to the national title. If I'm not mistaken, it was California, Cornell, Georgia Tech, Vanderbilt, and I want to say Princeton was in there because Princeton was always in there at that time of history. And there was one other team. Maybe it was like Washington and Jefferson, I want to say. It was a totally out there team like that. But you had six teams that could legitimately lay claim to the national title. And frankly, I hope we have six of them this year. Yeah, I mean, we can certainly be approaching that record for sure. Because, I mean, if I'm a an athletic director for a program and I have anyone who names my team number one, even if that's the local newspaper, I'd probably use that as enough to, to hang a banner this year. Because it's probably just as legitimate as anyone else if we're only playing conference schedules and we have no playoff, we have no bowl games or anything like that. This is the year of owning it, everybody. You know what? We've been under lockdown so long. Own the good times. So any good times that any of these teams get, they legitimately get to own. We're allowing the banners. On that note, everybody, we'll be back next week to talk about the Big 12, and who knows where the Big 12 will be at that point. But until then... Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be back with you next Wednesday.